Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. Austin, we're in uh, round two. This will be round two of our relationship uh, podcast month. And I'm excited about this couple again. I know I say that every time, but uh, I this is this is me, just the chair of excitement over here. Yeah, you can tell. You're you're just absolutely exuding excitement with your no one fights alone neon sign and you know. But no, super excited. Yeah, it's it's one of, I always love the uh the former Californians that come on. There's a lot of us out here. So Right. Um you feel a bond immediately with those that have left the state of California. So I'm excited to jump in their story and uh kind of learn about them myself. I know that you know them more uh, than I do. Well, these, uh, th this couple is from California. They no longer live there, but you can still, uh, you all had a little California moment, but uh, this is Dario and Amanda. Uh, Dario is a uh, U.S. Army veteran, two combat tours, uh, an old cop uh, serving the gang unit, SWAT, firearms instructor, uh, is now serving as a facilities director at a private school in Idaho. And Amanda, his beautiful bride, uh, 21 years in the medical industry as an RN, is currently professor at nursing at a university in Idaho, married for 15 years, been together for 20, and they have two sons, seven and nine. Amanda and Dario, welcome to the No One Fights Alone podcast. So glad to have you guys on. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. Well, we're excited about uh, having you on and telling your story. I know this is uh, this is Relationship Month, uh, but but uh, I'm just going to kind of open it up. Tell us a little bit of your background, each of you, as to kind of uh, how you arrived to where you are today. Um, I in 2003, I joined the army, got sent overseas. I was a, a Cav Scout, so I did a tour in in Iraq, and. Uh, when I got out of the army, I joined San Francisco Sheriff's Department. I was a, a deputy there for seven years, working in custody, um, some limited uh, patrol stuff. I did, uh, I was on the emergency services unit. So we did crowd management, crowd control, deal with high risk inmates, stuff like that. I was on a terrorism liaison team. And then, uh, and then I got called back in the army to go on a deployment to Afghanistan. And uh, I mean, between Iraq and Afghanistan, I started picking up little bits of trauma here and there that I just didn't deal with and uh, came back and um, continued at the Sheriff's Department until 2013. And then I got hired with uh, Petaluma Police Department and I just wanted more. I started doing patrol, um, got onto the firearms team, got onto the gang team, still wanted more, got onto the SWAT team. And uh, in 2021, uh, I was medically retired and um, I had just kind of burned the wick at both ends and reached my limit. And uh, now I work at my kid's school in Idaho. I'm the facilities manager and still help out with security, doing some training and uh, just passing the knowledge that I have onto the, um, the guys and gals that are on staff there that want to help protect the, the kids, staff, and school. 
I love that. And I know we're going to dive into a, a, a little bit deeper in, into the entire uh, medical retirement a little bit. But uh, Amanda, tell us a little bit about your uh, your background. And Mine's not as interesting, but <clears throat> when I was about 18 years old, I started working at a local hospital in the kitchen, just kind of as a job to do something to do, make money. And I really liked being in the hospital. I really liked bringing, you know, having interactions with the patients. So I became a nurse assistant. I did that for many years, went to nursing school, became a nurse, worked as a nurse, and I'm still a nurse um, <clears throat> for, I worked at the bedside in med search for about 12 years. And during that time, got my master's degree. And now I teach in the nursing department at a university here in Idaho. And I love it. I love teaching. And it feels, it, it feels good to be away from the bedside, but still have my hand in nursing and still get to, you know, <clears throat> pass on and give skills to students and make those connections, helping people in another way. Two great hearts, obviously. So what, tell us the love story version of Amanda and Dario. Like, how did you meet? What, what was the connection? Uh, we met at a gas station, and I always love to tell people that. We, we met at a gas station. Oh, that's awesome. The most romantic thing I've ever heard. Yeah. I know. You never know. You never know what's going to happen <clears throat> at any time. So we met at a gas station, and I was, we were young. We were 20, 20-ish. He was already in the Army, and he happened to be coming home for a, an emergency leave to go to a funeral. And he was only home for a week and that's the week that we met. And then after that he left, but we continued kind of a long distance relationship and here we are <laughs> 20 years later. You said 20 years, dude. I was like, Oh my gosh, it's been 20 years. What happened? You are in nothing. That's gotta yeah. be a great story. Tell me more about the gas station. Oh gosh. <laughs> okay. Well, I was pumping gas with my, with one of my friends and it was nighttime. It was like 10 o'clock at night. I was getting ready to go home. I had my dad's truck and it was like, I got to fill it up because we've just been driving around town all night long. And so um, I was filling it up and Blurio and his cousins were out cruising the town and they drove up to us and started talking to us. That's basically it. I mean, the cruising was like, <laughs> I hadn't seen my cousins in a while. Oh, I joined the army and then moved to Germany. So it was like, let's get out of the house or just go drive around and like tell this crazy story about how uh, now I'm living in Germany, getting ready to go to Iraq. And like, we have this quick five day moment to catch up. Mm -hmm. So we just went driving around, like telling stories about basic training and like Germany and what the future is going to look like. And then here's a car full of gals like, Oh, hey guys. Look, some hot girls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So was it love at first sight or was it? Uh... <laughs> uh, For him it was. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was like easy to talk to, but that's funny because uh, we exchanged numbers at the end of the night. And the next day I was hanging out with one of my cousins. We were at dinner and Amanda called and was like, hey, what are you guys doing? <laughs> we're eating dinner. And then she... She has a very different recollection of this, but she invited herself to the restaurant to have dinner with my cousin and I. It's just like a Mexican restaurant. Sure. Like we're just catching up some more. And um, I'm assertive. 
Of course. That's, that's the term. I love it. You just know what you want. Yeah. yeah that's like a grad school uh, vocabulary word. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so great. And then, uh, yeah, we just were hanging out for the next, uh, I had to leave like probably four days after that. And it was just. Um, Connection. Yeah. Like here's the email. That was kind of it. Yeah. Like, well, it was before FaceTime, before Facebook, before, like, it was really, like, it was actually, like, dial-up AOL to good old days. be able to send an email, and sometimes maybe we would, like, get a chat room where we could, you know, and then the time difference between Germany and California, the time difference between Iraq and California. Yeah, like, when mm-hmm. I left, it was like, okay, cool, we're leaving, and, like, I'm going to Baghdad. Yeah. And it's 2003. It's like, I don't know what's going what's gonna to happen. I remember the day he left, and I only knew him for five or six days. And I had a dentist appointment. And I went to the dentist, and I was in the dentist chair, and I was crying. And they were like, what's the matter? And, I mean, war was new kind of at the time. I mean, it wasn't something that we were all used to. It was 2003, so it had only been going on for two years-ish, you know, in, at least at the front of everyone's mind, not that other stuff wasn't going on, but... Very few people knew soldiers. Very few people knew about the war. It was just new. So when I was at the dentist, they were like, and I said, I just met this guy and really like him and he's going to war. And, you know. Wow, you fell pretty hard pretty quick. Well, yeah. Well. <laughs> so then it was, uh, we'd go on missions and stuff and, and come back and there would be these two couches with a coffee table with four phones in the middle. And all the dudes are saying all the same stuff to their girlfriends or wives or whatever, like, hey, I miss you. This place sucks. But there's this huge delay. Mm-hmm. So it was a terrible, uh, I wouldn't call friends and stuff because it would be impossible to talk to yeah. them with this delay of 2003 technology. So mm-hmm. you just sit there and <clears throat> there's a line of like 15 people waiting for the phones. <laughs> And everyone's saying the same cheesy stuff. Um, and then you hang up it. and then you go get back in line. Yeah. <laughs> Just keep... With a calling card. <laughs> I don't know how young your audience is, but I there know. used to be the calling cards. We're dating cards. ourselves. <laughs> this sure, isn't good. Oh, this is awesome. And no, then, uh, That's what our audience would feel. Like, we, I don't think we have anyone who listens under the age of 30. Yeah. It's so. a, it, I think you're talking to the right crowd. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, then pen and paper. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> MySpace started coming out. So anyway, <laughs> we'd stay in touch and then Yeah, but we I still have all the letters and he has a lot like we would it was like old fashioned. It was like writing letters, sending them a week or two later he would get them. I'd wake up in the morning and hope, oh, I hope I have an email, I hope I have an email. And then if I didn't, it would be like kind of like, Oh, I hope he's okay. You know, that's where it started. For me, that's where the stress started. You've been stressful since the beginning. And then I got back in 2004 and went on leave. And we had a couple weeks together before I had to go to Germany. And then it was more of the same, much safer, but uh, more of the same, except she came out to visit um, every few months. And then I would come home on leave. Mm-hmm. And then 2005, I moved back to the Bay Area. Yeah, like the end of 2005, because his mom got sick. So he went on hometown recruiting duty. And so um, then a few years later, we got married in 2009. 
Yeah, that's important to mention because he got out of the army. He was discharged in 2007 and he was, and he, he mentioned this briefly and I wanted to make sure that everybody understands that this happens. We were engaged. We were having like a year long engagement, planning a big wedding and be, you know, exciting all of our friends and family, 200 people. We survived this like long distance relationship and everything's great. Now he's I was working at the jail for as deputy. Yeah, he finished the police academy and he's got his career and I'm starting nursing school and we're getting married and it's like the beginning of an American dream. And then three weeks before our wedding, he had been out of the army two years, not in the reserves, and he was involuntarily recalled. And so he had to go to Afghanistan three weeks after our wedding for a year, which was obviously like... I think that was our first together real massive incident blow. Well, and I think for, for me, that was like, <clears throat> you're going to get killed in Afghanistan. And there was some other things that happened before I left or before I actually got into Afghanistan. So just start putting the walls up. Mm-hmm. That was kind of like our, the beginning of our marriage was when, like the beginning of. And I think it was, it was culminated was- though through, um, a rough childhood. I know like a lot of first responders, most of us, sure. I feel comfortable in saying, um, have had difficult childhoods or haven't had like the perfect family model moving into that career field. Right. So, um, I would call that a crisis. Your first, you, you were talking about instant, maybe this is your first kind of together crisis. How did you all handle that? How, how did you, how did you receive that? Well, during the deployment, I think it was just, it's funny watching, looking at it in hindsight is during his deployment, I was a loving, you know, emotionally pouring out into emails and letters and all of this. And like, I miss you and all that stuff. Wife, new wife, brand new wife. And Dario at first was that like I remember right before you left you know we, we were having these really sad conversations about all the what if kind of stuff and then when you when he first left it was he was kind of pouring out and loving and emotionally connecting with me through emails and phone calls and stuff but over time he was starting to retreat like the emails he was starting to emotionally retreat like the emails were Oh my gosh, I love you. I can't wait to come home and hold you. And you know, all these things. And then it, the emails over time turned into, here's what we did today. Here's what I'm doing later. Talk to you later. Love you. Kind of a thing. It was, it, it left emotional and went into like logistical. Sure. And, and that was the first time maybe I was really aware of feeling, does he not love me anymore? What's happening? You know, I'm taking it personally. And with maturity and education and intervention and all of that stuff, I can now see it had nothing to do with me. But when you're in it, you really can't see it that way. It's more of like a self-defense mechanism, I'm assuming. Yes, for him. Absolutely. I was like pretty convinced that I was going to get killed. Yeah. Pretty convinced. (laughs) So he was kind of like, why get attached to you? And that, yeah. I mean, if there's like any listeners that have military experience and first responder experience before, before mm-hmm. I even got into country, one of my buddies, uh, got killed in Iraq. Like he was on a different deployment. And then, uh, while I was in Kuwait waiting to go to Afghanistan, our first Sergeant, who's like a 
really high ranking uh, senior enlisted leader uh, got killed on the first or second patrol he went on. So I was like, we're, we're going to um, Eastern Afghanistan and it's just like, it's a wrap. It's over. So the way to prepare for that is just like start shutting down emotionally. But you're not even aware you're doing Sure. It. It's yeah. like you're thinking, oh, I'm going to withdraw now. It's like, that's just what's happening. Yeah. You know, it's not conscious. The No One Fights Alone podcast is excited to announce the launch of our new merchandise line. Now you can show your support for our mission by purchasing one of our hats, shirts, or hoodies. Our merchandise not only represents our brand and message, but also supports a great cause. A portion of all proceeds will go towards helping individuals and families affected by mental health. Wearing our merchandise not only spreads awareness for our podcast, but also serves as a reminder that no one has to fight alone. Join us in showing your support and spreading the message of hope and community by purchasing one of our No One Fights Alone items today from our website, nofapodcast.com, nofapodcast.com. So walk us, let's keep walking through the timeline here of, of, so you you come back from deployment, you start living out a law enforcement career, uh, and, and this, uh, this, it, what it appears just hearing your story and, and, and not trying to put words in your mouth again, but, uh, it, it looks like you're, you're kind of a tip of the spear kind of guy. Am I, is that I, I, and I know I'm not trying to coax you into being braggadocious. I'm just saying you, you, you've done a lot of crazy stuff. Uh, kind of. Yeah. Uh, but I just like, and then I started just turning into like, I need that for dopamine. That was where I was actually going to go. Was this, are you, have you figured out yet you're chasing something? Uh, no, I didn't. At that time, he hasn't figured that out now. Sure. Yes. Back then, sure. No. <laughs> but, but walk us through some of that. What this little pursuit you're on of this next, uh, you know, adrenaline rush high, walk us through a little bit of what that looks like in your career. Um, so I went back to the sheriff's department and then I got on the emergency services unit. And so that was just, um, a lot of like the giants would clinch the playoffs. They'd go try and burn muni buses and like riot downtown. And we would be there in squads where it's like six of us and a hundred people. Throw. I, my first deployment, I was driving downtown, like in the mission and we pulled up and bottles were just getting tossed at the van and it was like oh yeah like this is for real and so we get out and do our thing and then go back and it's like okay that was kind of scary really scary but i'm going to act like it was really cool of course even after like uh baghdad and afghanistan stuff it was like okay cool and then uh don't you feel like you kind of thought it was cool i did like, were you, were you aware that, were you aware that But I was scared? scared. Okay. That's what I was, why I didn't know. Um, <laughs> and so then, then it was like, it's time. I felt like I had kind of maxed out, um, yeah. my career in that department, right. but wanting more. And like the first time I had really gotten into backing up a little bit, like physical fights was working at this hospital. And we were fighting psych patients, like buddies were getting injured. I had a buddy, like we got into a a fight and he got admitted into the hospital. 
super scary at the time, but then afterwards it was like, heck yeah. And, um, terrible traumatic stuff coming into the ER that we would have to deal with and just like fighting psych patient after psych patient after psych patient and looking for that adrenaline again of like, Hey, I don't want to get hurt, but I'm like, it, it just really started when people talk about, um, adrenal fatigue. I tell people like, no, I had like adrenal failure and it just got worse. And so I went to, um, Petaluma police department and, and then from there it was like, cool. When can I get on the SWAT team? Like talking to everybody that was like the, the pinnacle of that. And in the meantime, <clears throat> I got on the, uh, gang team and doing the firearms instruction. I just like shooting and helping others, um, with that. So got on the SWAT team and, um, went on like my, I think my first, uh, SWAT operation was, uh, a call out to go pick up a homicide suspect. And I was like, yeah, this is it. And, um, and I just kept going. That was feeding the, the need for the dopamine and adrenaline. Um, and then the traumatic calls for service were just sucking the life out of me slowly, but surely. And were you, were you communicating with Amanda on these kind of things? Like, I mean, Amanda, how did you feel about his career choice? Like, did you know what he was being called to? Did you know what he was doing on a daily basis? There's some level of like, I don't really know. I hear these stories, but it's easy to put them over there. But I mean, like when we first met, he was going to war. And so I knew what I was getting into, obviously. And I knew that he wanted to be a police officer. I knew those things. But do you really understand what that means for you in your life at that time? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I will say <clears throat> that um, throughout the years of, of, you know, Dario doing all of this stuff, it's interesting to, to like for us when we, when we talk through it sometimes from my perspective, I've always been very supportive of him and I've always, I'm there for you. I'm supporting you. I'm proud of you. I'm all of these things. Um, but that's not really the message that he ever felt from me. He always felt like I was kind of like nagging and upset and like, why do you have to do this? Or I'm worried about you and blah, blah, blah. Like I'm having these needs <clears throat> throughout the years of like what happened, explain, you know, explain it to me. To, you know, I just, I was more from my perspective, being supportive from his perspective, making the situation more difficult, but I didn't know that. And then I think that helped to create some sort of like division between us. Did you feel like you were protecting her, Dario, from everything that you'd seen by not Probably. talking about it? I was just a mess where it was like, it was easier to go to work mm -hmm. than to tell Amanda, like, I love you and this is what's going on or spend time with you. Mm -hmm. And it started going from like, hey, you're doing really good at work, like leading an arrest, which don't mean anything to me anymore. Uh, and doing this and like at the end of my career, I got, um, nominated for officer of the year by, uh, a supervisor and a peer and the, our marriage was tanking. Yeah. And so I, I, like, I was just giving up whatever, um, at home to do what I could at work. 
we've learned through the years that there's this, like, I mean, we've learned through therapy and through the years that basically it's a very uh, obvious thing once somebody points it down, points it out to you, which is um, the pursuer withdrawer way of communicating. <laughs> That's basically what we were doing was I was pursuing him. Like I was wanting connection with him, attention, you know, I wanted to understand what was going on, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, absolutely not under no circumstance. And he would withdraw and I wouldn't really allow that. And I'm just continuing to kind of chase after him. And I don't mean like chase after him, but just connection, like a conversation where there's some sort of honesty or what's actually going on or how are you really, or do you even love me still? Cause this is very difficult kind of thing and the withdrawer and I wouldn't allow it. So then he would get angry with me and get mean with me. And he's even said, you know, I'll say whatever I have to say to you to get you to leave me alone. It's like winning a battle. I have to do whatever I have to do to get out of it and to win it. And that's like the way, that's the mindset that he was having when in, in interactions with me, not the enemy. So with that, with that kind of word picture in mind, it sounds like at a minimal level, uh, a lot of, frustration on both sides but but we're we're being pretty cognitive about this what's really what's really happening how, how are you feeling about this at what point does frustration become hurt and sadness and pain we're, we're well that is is i mean if you're asking what, yeah me, what does that look like give us give us a glimpse of what that are these fights are these avoidance are they yes. silence are they it's both like, yeah, everything. I mean, when I first got back from Afghanistan, it was like stupid stuff would make me so mad that at a certain point, I'm, one time I drove to the gas station when I first got back and I was just like, get out of the car. Mm-hmm. Like I just, yeah. I maxed out over nothing. Literally nothing. It had to do about like being late to this like sheriff's like shootout like a um deputy sheriff's association and we weren't even late but he thought that i was making us late so angry please get out of the car and it wasn't please get out of the car you know you can imagine what it actually was sure of course like unkind words yeah very unkind words yeah just just basic interactions like we would just i can't even Maybe this is like a defense mechanism or we're on the spot. I should have thought about this better. Like specific interactions that were harmful. It felt it just so many of them. It's hard to sure. find one in my mind. But yeah, just like what can I say to get her away from me? And that's so hurtful, even still to hear. Like, I love you so much. And it's so like, much. I don't know where, yeah. Why do you want me to get away from you? It's not like violent, but it's just like the most rude, yeah. hurtful. I mean, did you have any idea that it was connected to what you were seeing on a daily basis, what you had seen in the military? Like, had you made any of that connection that maybe that changed you a little bit? Um, not till, you know, it's when I first got into the sheriff's department, we went to, uh, and maybe you guys know who this is, but, uh, Dr. Kevin Gilmartin, Mm -hmm. like emotional survival for law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about like different stages of your career and what you see and your thought process behind things. The biggest thing for me was like, um, 
when you start out and it's like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And then at the end it's, I used to do this and I used to do that. So that was in 2000, maybe nine that I saw him. And then we went back in 2019 and I was like, holy shit, I'm that dude. Right. Yeah. And it was like, uh, it just clicked. And I'm sitting there with like a newer cop, like, dude, you're screwed. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Like just sitting there in my head, like what is going on? And I've already seen in, in his presentations are pretty much like rewatching a movie. They're the same things over and over and over again. But I turned into that like angry dude that he talks about being in the back of the room. Like you can't make me do this. And, uh, have you guys seen his, his presentation? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the guy he talked about and the, the assholes and bullshit, like I got to wear this hat. Can you believe this asshole maybe do this bullshit? Uh-huh. And it was like really, really eye-opening. And um, that was after, I don't know how much you guys, we don't, I got into a shooting, the suspect ended up dead. And that was, for me, there was reasoning behind that. It was more of, he had a gun and aimed it at cops and um, he ended up passing away. So the thing that happened the next year, like throughout the year and a half was just these super traumatic calls where I couldn't reconcile why things happened to these people. And um, it was like uh, teen suicide, plane crash, just call after call after call of just like, wow, that is horrible. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then a couple squat, like there was two calls. One was a couple weeks before I went out where, uh, there was a SWAT call out with a man with a gun. And I was like, one of my friends is going to get shot and killed on this. I have to be in that room first so that I can either shoot and kill him or shoot and end it so that he doesn't have to, or I'm just going to get shot and they're going to handle whatever has to happen and they won't get shot. And then another one was, um, it's hard to hear. Uh, we went to a call guy had a gun tackled him and, um, I was kicking this dude in the head, trying to render him unconscious. And it was a, like another cop had already gotten hurt, broke his hand. And, um, the guy had already punched some, another cop like he was ultra violent and it happened really fast. And so I was like, cool, I need to end this. And, uh, a good friend of mine was on top of the guys kicking the dude. We ended up getting him into custody oh. and I went home mm-hmm. and went to sleep. Like, it was just like, here I am stress level zero adrenaline or whatever. I could just go home. Like, Oh shit, I got to get up and be in briefing at 7 a.m. So let's go to sleep. Lay my head down, went to sleep. And it wasn't like that for other people at the call. I remember Dario feeling kind of shaken to hear the next day or the, in the following days, some of his friends from that incident saying like, yeah, I couldn't sleep. I was like jacked up after that. And Dario having the, re- the recognition, the, the insight, thankfully to realize, huh, I didn't really feel much after we did that violent interaction with that person. Maybe that's not good. You know, another thing that I want to mention in that as the wife and the family side of this is 
he goes to those things. Like I remember that day clearly. I sent, I called him and I was like, oh, hey, it's like five o'clock. You're off at six. How's the day going? Do you think you're going to be home in time? I'm going to get dinner started. He's like, yeah, we're good. Like I'm in the report room. Things are going to be fine. You know, I'll see you at like 6.15. Cool. So then I have our two young kids, a one and a three-year-old in the bath or whatever. I don't know how old they were. They were young. They're in the bath. <clears throat> and I get an alert on my phone that says, you know, there's police activity in this area, avoid the area, you know, it's like a countywide alert thing. And so immediately I know, okay, you know, he's in, you know, he's involved in the, it's like a, it kind of like, it's a gut punch. Like it, it, it's an instant, um, instant anxiety. Like he was fine just a second ago. And like that now he's not, he's doing something. I don't know what he's doing. He's in danger. That's not the point I wanted to make. The point I wanted to make was our home life. I'm making dinner. We have kids in the bath. He's out doing this violent interaction. And then when that's over, he has to come home. And the transition between those two worlds is not something that I feel like families are prepared to deal with. And even myself, being a nurse, you know, being well-educated, I feel like I'm pretty mature. I have pretty good mental health. Even I could not see that he they need some sort of facilitation in those moments all the time. Like at war, you're overseas, you're physically, geographically somewhere else. You kind of come back. And I don't think that the military does a good job at this transition either, but within law enforcement and first responders, it's like 30 minutes ago, you were doing this. Now you're here. And can you hold the baby? Like, or can you, and it's like, how do you do It's like mental gymnastics and what we're asking them to do what I was expecting him to be able to do, like, what's your problem? Like, why can't you help me? I've been here with them all day. I'm exhausted. And like, yeah, okay. You had a fight. Like, that's what you signed up for. What's the problem? You know, like that, I, I wasn't like mature enough or educated enough, or I don't know. I didn't have the insight enough, or maybe I was too intentionally blocking it out. I'm not really sure what it was, but it was, it, that is a really difficult thing. I think for the first responder families is the transition. Like you just started a terrible car crash. Now you're home. You're just taking this toddler and kids out of a drug house. And now here you are home an hour later with your own toddler, you know, like who, how do you do that? Well, how can anyone do that? Well, after so much, Amanda, time? you're speaking for so many people right now. Uh, this is, this is, this is such a pervasive issue and, and sometimes uh, there are no good answers for it uh, other than uh, just, lean into it and and be well informed and educated but i i remember uh so many times uh in my personal career of having some absolutely crazy event uh and oftentimes some of the worst were death notifications i can't tell you how many death notifications i did i would be sitting there uh you know communicating this horrendous news and then an hour later, I was expected to be the calm, kind, gentle husband at dinner with my wife. And it, it, the, 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 just the, the, the tear of, of that imbalance uh, was just mm -hmm. so difficult. So I, I just want to reinforce that explanation that you just gave is uh, something that I think so many people in the first responder uh, community can identify with, but let's, 
let's keep moving towards this uh this culmination of uh kind of uh everything coming off the rails um and 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 keep going with towards your story there dario when when it, when it all starts to come apart what is it looking like um basically like very little intimacy very little interaction with each other arguing regularly but i do want to say something that i feel like is really important to say which is that he never had this barrier up and still never has had this barrier up with our children he's it's only really been towards me i've kind of been like the brunt taker of his of our situation but he was always very he is and was always very present and loving and open with our kids i think maybe you said a few years later like you started to kind of feel not as much you were going through the motions maybe you weren't feeling it with the kids but but we had very little connection and then <clears throat> I feel like for me the one I recognized oh my gosh like this is serious and we are not doing good was one night we were going through the motions of we're going to go on a date night with some friends and that's another thing I want to say is that like from the outside the appearance the appearances of us and our family and our marriage were everything's great and look she's a nurse and he's a cop and their kids are so cute and their house is nice and they have you know they have a nice car and everything's great and like the family photos with the matching outfits with the kids and the pretty lighting and all the crap honestly the facade but really behind that was was a mess just deep pain and a mess and so one night we're going through the most motions of that facade we're meeting up with some friends at a place downtown, they were not first responders. And Dario and I were arguing about something, I don't even know. And he was in the shower and I was in the bathroom getting ready. And all of a sudden something struck me and I felt like I should ask him, like, are you are you thinking of harming yourself? Like, are, do you wanna, are you thinking of harming yourself? It was like nurse brain came out all of a sudden. And he said, no, but I'm miserable. And I wouldn't mind if a DUI driver crashed into me. And if I just get hurt enough, then people would understand why I'm not doing this job anymore. Like he felt like I have to have some big reason. Otherwise people aren't going to understand if you know why. So he was saying like, I wish someone would crash into me. And I remember thinking that moment, like, oh my gosh, you know, this is not normal this is not good. We're not doing good at all. And it kind of changed. I went from like angry to like, uh Oh, you know, it went from my position softened dramatically. Cause I was able to see this isn't just, he's not just being mean, he's in pain. And then I think for you, the next thing that may have been like a big moment for you was when Mac, the Mac situation. Yeah. Maybe so like, um, Within a matter of, do you want him to scoot over a little bit? Within a matter of a few months, I had an army buddy kill himself um, that I was in Iraq with, a deputy sheriff at San Francisco shoot himself, and then we had a um, a local FBI agent that um, was on a SWAT team. Their regional SWAT team in the Bay Area would train our SWAT team, and he ended up shooting himself in his, um, in his work car. And it was like, 
how do these guys, cause the guy, the FBI guy was just like a rock star they, they all were, but I mean, this guy, like I just saw him at a Christmas party. We had a SWAT Christmas party and I was like, he was the dude that was probably in Quantico. And I looked at myself like, um, in the police academy where I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to take every bad guy on the planet to jail. Like I'll fill it by myself. Crime's over. <laughs> and here I am like one of the last, after that SWAT call out, um, where I thought I was going to get shot and my buddy was like hitting the steering wheel, yelling at people, talking on the radio for doing shit that I thought was dumb. I'm not yelling on the radio. I'm just in my car, like so angry. And I was like, I went from that guy in the police academy to like just being so mad. And how did this dude go from the guy sitting at FBI graduation to eating his gun? And I'm like, where am I on that spectrum? To the point of like, well, I can't ask for help. But if a DUI driver smacks me and like, hey, look at my knee, I can't work anymore. I don't look like a shit bag or someone that is like taking the easy way out by saying I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Which and, is really not the easy way out. That was like the hardest thing you ever did. Yeah. So probably it was like two weeks after that SWAT call out, I was like, I'm done. Mm -hmm. uh, like in five months after the FBI uh, buddy shot himself mm -hmm. and I went in. Well, I don't know where you want to go with that, but well, I, I, do, I, I, I actually wanted to follow up on, on that. That's, that's not an uncommon, uh, line of thinking. I, I myself remember thinking it would be, I wasn't suicidal. I don't want to, I don't want to take my own life, but my entire family and my career would be better off if I could, if I could be killed in the line of duty, if I, and I was doing so many high risk um, activities and placing myself at high risk uh, opportunities for that, that it was pretty ridiculous. I, I remember, uh, and, and it was a way out. It was, this is, and I didn't know what it was at the time either. I didn't, I didn't know what was, what that, uh, what was happening inside of me, what was boiling underneath the surface. So uh, yeah, what you're, what you're saying there, Dario, really <laughs> resonates deep. It, it's crazy. I was thinking like another, there was a, there was like a, um, and under pressure, I felt like I, I did well, like with the, and the ability to make decisions. Um, there was like an armed suspect and, uh, we, we got him subdued. And I got like a medal of valor for that. Mm -hmm. And then we had the shooting. There was a couple things involved in that where I could think through the process calmly. And I took my body cam and like set it up. So we filmed the whole, the whole thing. And then after, like, I was like, if we, if we, I guess one of the things with the shooting was the very next day that I worked after the shooting, we had the exact same call for service. And I was like, there's no way my first day back, I'm going to kill somebody else. Like, and that kind of like started in with like the anxiety with like man for gun, like man with a gun call. Whereas like, I just don't want to be 
violent anymore. And it was like another um, man with a gun call. And my anxiety was so bad. I was like, cool, I'm going to pie this. It was like a big um, Cisco Foods truck. And I watched the guy walk behind the truck and the truck just did the like air brakes just and stopped. And the dude didn't walk past it. And I was like, you're, you're killing me, bud. Like tactically. So I, I started pying around it and I was in my head, like this guy's going to pull up a gun. I'm going to shoot him. I'm going to set all my stuff down and I'm just going to walk away and just like, I fucking quit. Like I am done. This is my way out. And I won't have to do anything else. I won't have to ask. Like, they'll just be like, this guy's gotten too much stuff. Like, he's done. I was ready to quit. And um, and it probably took another year or whatever. But I finally got to that point, probably after that last walk call out, where I knew I was done. I didn't know how to ask for help. And I finally... I don't know. I talked to like the senior cop and I was like, Hey dude, like we're talking on the phone. I'm like, tomorrow's it. I have to go in. And I, uh, I went in on my day off and told this Lieutenant, like, I need help. And he's like, Oh, what do you need help with? Yeah. Like they, they had no idea. They were like shocked. by. And I was like, I'm a, just like a shit sandwich right now. (laughs) And he's probably thinking like, well, that's weird. Like they just, like a couple of your coworkers just like put you in, nominated you. And someone else was getting it because they're like a rad detective and just doing the right thing. But I think like overall, it wasn't like, hey, this dude's showing up drunk. He's crashing cars. He's not arresting anyone. It was just like, well, what do you mean? Like and I was like, I, I can't do this. Like, I can't go to work right now. Yeah. One thing I want to point out, though, is that we were lacking joy, lacking connection. He was struggling. We were struggling well before the shooting ever happened. Sure. And so I, I really feel like it's a really important thing to say. If you haven't been in a critical incident, if your husband or wife or spouse or whoever hasn't been in a critical incident per se that fits into the box of that, it doesn't matter because the accumulation of things every day, every call already had us at this very low point and you needed help. I mean, don't you think you were, we were needing help way before the shooting, the shooting, I feel like was the icing on the cake, the cake that was already made. You feel like you, you, I mean, don't you feel like you were already kind of like, we were already struggling deeply before that. And for a lot of people it's, um, they got work stuff going on relationship and it could be like uh the car breaks down kids are sick like sick like with um mm-hmm. really debilitating illnesses they're going through a divorce <clears throat> what it, it doesn't have to be like this big event like a, a shooting it could be a bunch of crazy calls for service and there's work stuff going on with um administrative betrayal and your home life. And it's like when these three things come together, it is a recipe for disaster. And uh, yeah, one day, like the end of July in 2019, I just was like, I I am, (laughs) 
I'm maxed out. But before that, if you had asked me, and I've been with Dario at the time since 2003, this is 2019, we've been together many years. If you were to ask me, is he ever going to leave law enforcement? Is he ever going to change? Is any of this ever going to change? I mean, like, absolutely under no circumstance will he leave service. It's not going to happen. He would rather die. He'd rather lose our family. Like he, he would do anything. I feel I, I have this like image in my mind that here we are, our family and our kids and our marriage and everything. He's just like ready to put it at the altar. Like I'll give you whatever it is because service first. And so the deep sense of betrayal that I had been having for all of those years, feeling that's his heart and he would do that. When he went and asked for help and took the leave of absence, I was just as shocked as everyone else. Wow. And let's let's talk about that turning point like that. He, let's get to the healing portion now because it's been four years uh, mm-hmm. since that happened. Like what it both you guys personally and then in your marriage kind of what what started happening? What was the healing process there? Well, Dario had a really good analogy at the time was like his bathtub is full, his bathtub's overflowing and he needs to turn off the faucet and let the bathtub drain out. And then once there's room in the bath, then we'll decide if you're going to turn the faucet back on. The faucet being like exposures, you know, the faucet being those things that, that you're coming into contact with at work. And so when he first took, do you remember saying that? Oh, <laughs> he did. <laughs> when he first took the leave, it was scary. It was like, okay, well now what? And, you know, oh my gosh. And I think he was, you know, I think you should just say, say for a second, if anybody out there is considering the doing, amount of shame that I had self-shame and overwhelming. Feeling, yeah. was like, he was immediately like, what did I do? And even though it was the right thing in that initial moment, in those initial days and like weeks afterwards was like, he wanted to just hide. He just didn't even want to go out. He, he was just like, you know, but it, but that wasn't, that was just, with well, let, let me clarify the, the basis of the shame. The shame is coming from asking for help. Is that, is that fair? Asking for help and then also feeling like I'm letting everyone else down or everybody else is fine. Mm-hmm. Everybody else went through those same calls and everybody else went through the same stuff and they're fine and I'm not and there must be something wrong with me. And so I have to hide. Sure. And just for clarity, yeah. because in our culture and our first responder veteran, you're, you're a big badass veteran and cop SWAT guy. And for you to step up to the to the line and say i'm not doing good now everybody points the finger and say oh he's weak or or that's what we internalize that's the narrative we, sure. we tell ourselves right yes sure so that started um i i started therapy like that week with um through like the workers comp process and I had already called the West Coast Post Trauma Retreat, and there was, I think, like a year wait, probably. Yeah, still is normally. Yeah. So um, I went, I ended up going in. Um, Five months later, they had some sort of opening. Yeah, and I had to go to Seattle. So I went up there and. Because it could be a long wait, but if you put yourself on the cancel list, people back out at the last mm-hmm. minute and it's available, you can go. So even if they tell you it's a long wait, there's a good chance you could get in a lot sooner. Yeah. Um, and if people are listening to this, and 
I just like to say, listen to the episode that Nick Turkovich was on. Yeah. You can probably do a, a lot better job of explaining how that works just with his history. Um, so I went there in, in December of 2019 and came back like a lot lighter. It's a week long and so, you stay there. Yeah. And it was a, a, it's group and individual, but a lot of it is group therapy. And I just had the, probably a typical feeling of like, how are these five other strangers in my group going to help me get any flipping healing? Like yeah. this is trash. <laughs> I'm going to leave. I'm going to figure out a way to go. Group stuff is stupid. Like this whole thing is, you know, just the worst attitude about it. Yeah. And I left like with a lot of insight, a lot of relief, mm -hmm. five really good friends. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, and even, um, the coordinator for the Washington group and, um, Nick Turkovich, who's affiliated with the group, mm -hmm. uh, our friends, we text each other regularly and it's just, I go back any chance I can right now. It's like twice a year and go back and volunteer at that program. Cause I just, I believe in it and I know it's helped, uh, almost a couple thousand clients mm -hmm. right now. And I mean, it, it saved my life. Um, Absolutely. It, like saved my life, not from me wanting. Not from to, death, but from like self-harm, but just like dying on the inside. Yeah. And I, it, it saves lives of people that are at that point where they're thinking about taking their own life or harming themselves. Um, yeah. And it's just a program that I can't give enough back to. When he first took the leave, in the next few weeks and months after that, there was maybe two or three other guys that reached out to him that were like, yeah, I'm not doing good either. And then since the, since then, you know, in the years past, there's been like 10 or 15 more who were like, me too. I need help too. Like, I really am so proud of Dario because his courage that day to ask for help and say, and go to the retreat and people saw us before and they see how it is now and how he is now. People are like, I, I want that. I didn't realize that was possible. That's something that, you know, it's like you're a living demonstration of you can still be tough and tactical and capable, but you can also be joyful yeah. and peaceful. Tactical. Yeah, exactly. Well, so it sounds like, uh, you know, we just snapped our fingers and all is bright and shiny. And no, that's not. I think say. there's, I think there's enormous missing component here. If we circle back to the marriage, um, you know, what when he leaves to go to West Coast Trauma Retreat, Amanda, what's really going on in the marriage at this point? Because I, you know, no doubt, most of the time, the spouses have a greater sense of the health or lack of the marriage than the first responder mm -hmm. does. What's what's the marriage right. really look like? <clears throat> I just can't emphasize enough that there wasn't really any sort of meaningful communication. If I would ever try to seek that out in him, he would just withdraw and get frustrated with me. Like he's always been really good provider financially, you know, taking care of all the things, helping with kids, whatever, when, when he can, like going through the motions of all the things. But 
if I want any piece more of closeness with him, that's absolutely not happening. And then it would just turn into a fight that could last for days and days of just meanness. Um, when he was going to the retreat, when he left for the retreat, it was interesting because this is, this is something that I just did not see coming at all, which is, oh yeah, he's going to this retreat. I don't know. It's something that's going to help him. Great. It's going to help him. Awesome. And that's kind of all the thought I gave to it. He's going to go to this retreat and he's going to get help. Cool. And then he leaves and he's gone for a day or two and we don't have a lot of communication really. And I know he's there. And then at the end of like the first or second day, he calls and he's, you know, sharing a little bit. And then as the week goes on, he's sharing like some more and more. And then when he comes home, he's like got Zen and peace and calm. And it's like a Dario that I had not met before. And he's sharing about things and he's crying and he's being open. And I'll never forget, like we're sitting on our living room couches across from each other. And he's telling me about all of this healing and beauty and sharing and feelings and, you know, just years worth is coming out in this conversation. And you would think that I would feel happy and grateful in that moment. And I wish that is what, what I, what I felt. It wasn't what I felt at all. What I felt was devastated that he had all of these experiences that of, of wonder and beauty and healing. And I wasn't part of it. And I had to be part of all of these years of pain and withdrawal and walls up and anger. And I was like, drug through that. Not like I'm some sort of innocent victim. Of course, we all have our crosses to bear and I wasn't always saying the nicest things either. It's not all him. I, I don't want to paint that picture. It's not all him. There's always takes two. <clears throat> but having gone through all of those dark times together and then he went to this retreat, like, you know, I think about it, you know, he went off for a week in Seattle at this beautiful retreat place and just cracked open and poured out. And I had been desperate for that for years and years. And it finally happened and I wasn't there. And who were those strangers that were able to reach you? And I've been desperate to reach you and haven't. And it took me a long time. It took me like kind of weeks, months-ish to, and my own therapy to work through that to figure out like, this isn't about you. And that's really hard to internalize. And so I say that to say, if you are ever a spouse, let yourself feel whatever you're going to feel, but know that it might not be what you expect because <laughs> it was not what I expected at all. You would think I would be glad and I was glad, but I was also hurt by it. Of course. Yes. It makes perfect sense. So, <clears throat> so that's a, that's exactly what I was looking for. So, so as we're, as we're growing Dario and Amanda, now that we're, we're back from West coast trauma, what are some of the things that you start, uh, using to mend this, uh, this marriage once you're back and, and, you know, this, now that Dario's found Zen, love, love to explore that yeah. on another day, what Zen Dario looks like. But, but what are some of the things to give us a little bit more insight into the marriage in, in growing? And I know, I know it's not all pleasant, but there's got to be some great moments. There's got to be some, some really transparent uh, moments of getting real and honest and 
give us a little bit of give us a little bit of insight there and as to uh, right up to where we are now. I think overall our relationship has kind of been like if you look at a hundred year snapshot of like the stock market, <laughs> there is definitely ups and downs, even with me. I think I'm like, I've gone back to the retreat like eight times. And so um, it's definitely it getting better, but also rocky. You have those tendencies that are um, hardwired from trauma to, to it's just, you know, where there's a safe space and that can be reverting back. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like the neural pathways and the behaviors are well-established and it takes conscious effort at the front of your mind to behave in a different way, to have a different mm -hmm. outcome, you know? And so I think sometimes that's easier for us. Here's the difference is that it's possible now for us to do that for us. To, it, it's that the healthier pathway is accessible. Whereas before it didn't exist. There wasn't a healthy pathway. Now that pathway has been created. And is that the path we always take? No, but, but we, we are able to get there. He's, I can reach him and we can get on the better path. Whereas before it didn't exist. I would say. I just like, you know, I want to be real. Like if you go to save a warrior, warrior's <clears throat> heart, one of the, what WCPR, WCPR, like whatever it is, like it's going to set you on the right trajectory, mm -hmm. but it, there's, when you come back home, there's still going to be home life and, and ups and downs. Yes. But the connect, but, but, but like we're able to, I'm absolutely. able to reach him now. Um, we can talk better. I started going like we're involved in going to uh, church on regular um, on a regular basis. So getting back into that, getting back into, uh, dating, mm -hmm. uh, getting back into being, um, purposeful on, on like time we're spending with the kids. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing at the retreat, you guys would, you guys would do check-ins yeah. in the mornings. And that's one of, that's another thing that we, we try to bring in and try to integrate in. And of course you kind of fall out of the patterns and then you bring them back in. But at least we have those things, which is like the check-ins. How are you feeling? How did you sleep? You know, what do you, what, what, what are the other things I'm going with? Like, just kind of like inside. checking in a little bit. How are you? Where are you? Whereas before that wasn't even thought of. It was just. But even if it's a five minute, like check-in with your significant other it like it can go a long way and so we started integrating that into just having coffee in the morning mm -hmm. or uh, after the kids go to bed because it's so easy to pick up the phone and just like goodbye yeah and start scrolling we're guilty of that of course but just having an awareness of like there are other things out there that work mm -hmm. and what worked for us is like yeah, and we've experienced those things. Like it, may, it makes me like tearful to recognize how it was closed off, and I was like desperate to get to be, you know, in hit within his like, I don't know, your, your heart, basically, for lack of a better word. But like now, having been able to really reach him and connect with him, it's like 
totally different. Like, oh, see, oh, it is possible. This is what I had hoped for all these years. This, like, you are. There is a loving man in there who you know is capable of showing me that. Whereas before, it was a drought, you know, and it was just like, I guess we're just gonna have, we're just gonna live miserably. And now it's like we don't have to live miserable. Yes, we totally still have. I think it's good that you're mentioning because it's not like you go to the retreat and all of a sudden your life is a garden of roses. That's not it. But you have other alternatives to misery that you can consciously choose that are, you know, made available that were not available before. Well, it certainly sounds like the quality of your relationship is is has is has improved dramatically. And and uh, kind of as we're wrapping up, uh, I want to. I want to give both of you the opportunity to to encourage the listeners out here uh, because I know this was your heart originally, Amanda when, and Dario, when we had this conversation that you you wanted to make sure that you provided a message to other people that they uh, anyone going through something similar that they're not alone. Uh, and I, I want to afford you that opportunity. If there's if there's one or two tidbits uh, each of you want to pass on to the listeners. Is, as to uh, how to care for your marriage or take care of yourself, either one or both, what would those be? For me, if you're uh, in any first responder capacity is uh, the resources are there at your department. Even if you think it's not going to be well received, the leadership is there to help you. You have to ask for it. It's difficult to do. Um, but your friends and colleagues and, and leadership team will not think of you in a negative manner to get the help that you need. And, mm -hmm. um, and if they do, they're not really your friend. I think that they have to, or first responders, like you have to, if you're going to go through a career seeing and doing what you see and do, you have to have a strategy to mitigate the effects of trauma and stress. And it's okay to have a regular therapist. If you don't want to do that, it's okay when you have a bad day or a bad call to ask to go see a therapist and scrub some of that stuff that you dealt with. Mm -hmm. It's going to make your career a lot longer but and a lot more rewarding mm -hmm. to have an ability to, to shed some or process <clears throat> some of what we see because the rest of the public doesn't see that on a regular basis like we do. Sure. And uh, I think that if I did that and asked for help much earlier, I would absolutely still be a police officer. It, it um, I think a lot of it is on me for not asking for help. And some is on our, my department for not having plans in place for dealing with, and this is at the time, and this is probably all department, like, you know, most people, most departments in the nation, not having a robust, um, program to deal with stress and trauma mm -hmm. on like, if everyone is sitting around going, well, wow, that was terrible. Instead of going to Starbucks and just like, cool, we're going to like pretend this didn't happen and go on to the next call for service, meet with your leadership team and say, we need a debrief. And I might need a session or two of. EMDR or psychotherapy, whatever, and, and process that sure. you will be better and your family will be better. And the department, whatever department it is, will be better for supporting that. Mm -hmm. 
Sure. That's spot on. How about you, Amanda? Um, my advice would be <clears throat> the first thing is don't think that you're alone because I remember sometimes interacting with other spouses or other families, families of first responders, and they always seemed fine. And so it made me feel like it's just us and it's not just you. And hopefully hearing our story, even though I'm not really sure how clearly we told it, um, you know, hopefully hearing us, hopefully normalizes it a little bit for you. It's not normal. The stuff that your spouse is going through is not normal. And their reactions to that abnormal, it feels abnormal to you, but it is normal. And so maybe have those gentle conversations if you can about, you know, strategies to having a healthy marriage. But the other thing is, um, if your spouse isn't ready to do that, you have to take care of yourself. So like when Dario was going through a lot of this stuff and he was not ready to face it, I was going to church by myself. I was going to the gym. I had a therapist. I was spending a lot of time with family and friends and having these other ways of supporting myself so that I was strong enough and, and getting yourself healthy, getting yourself into the best, you know, mental headspace so that you can be your best version for your spouse that is going through all of this. Great advice. Great advice. Dario, Amanda, thank you guys so much for coming on and telling your story uh, with the No One Fights Alone podcast. The listeners are going to be super uh, beneficial from hearing it. So thank you guys. We'll see you soon. Chateau Health and Wellness is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's first responder resiliency program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Health and Wellness is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031.